You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So we were just talking about the workflow of bringing things from Inventor over into Fusion, losing some references, losing sketches, trying to retrieve CAM, all the various challenges that come when you try to make a major update into a historical workflow in the shop. And I had a conversation with Easton from Moria Manufacturing about the same thing today, about how we handle all of our probing in the shop, like how we do probe calibrations and how often we do probe calibrations and how we do rough stock probes to prep stocks for very wide tolerance op ones and how we do probing for refining op twos and all this stuff. And currently we use Renishaw probes and we use Renishaw macros, Renishaw programs. And I know a lot of other brother users are using Renishaw probes with modified bloom programs and mm-hmm. really like those. The Renishaw stuff is kind of clunky. And I was showing my employee, Nick, I was walking through because we were trying to take out an unnecessary optional stop in some of our manual probing programs where we just need to quickly grab a size, find a top center on a piece of stock that's not a standard size. I'm not using it on a fixture. I've just got it on a vice. I don't have an easy way to reference a fixed work coordinate on the vice. I just want to real quick, XYZ, probe this thing, drill some holes in it. And there's an optional stop between each axis. So power the probe up, it probes two points in X, and then optional stops, feed holes. You have to hit start again, it probes two points in Y, and then feed holes. You have to hit it again, and it probes Z. And I want to just take those feed holes out. There's no reason. What, what's putting those in there? It's in the Renishaw subprogram oh, okay. somewhere. All right. There's just an M0 in there. And so I found the spot where the M0 is, and I checked with my apps rep. I'm like, apps guy from Yamas. I'm like, hey, can I just bracket this out? Can I just comment this M0 out? He's like, should be fine. Commented it out and immediately started throwing an alarm, a, a pro open in one of the cascading subroutines. And, that, mm. and my employee is like, well, why does that happen? I'm like, I don't know. Let's look at that subroutine. And we're tabbing through it on the screen at the machine. And it's just absolute gibberish. Yeah. It's completely incomprehensible. And the fact that it has a lot of forward and backward go-to commands in it. I said, this is a multi-layered choose-your-own-adventure book. It's not just one choose-your-own-adventure book. Like You get to page 17. It's like, if you choose to do this, go to page 69. If you choose to do this, go to this other book. Start at yeah. page 44 and you do that whole adventure. It's like Inception. Yeah. You have like layers within layers yeah. of layers of stuff. And then you jump back out. Yeah. And you got to reread stuff. And if you f- skip stuff, yeah, I've yeah. noticed that about those pro, I would say it's like a professional type of probing routine. Yeah. It's, and it's so not like I the can stuff look at that it. you or I would write. No, like the probing program that I write is 10 lines long and has three G65P and then program number calls in. Yep. It's super simple. And I've got a comment that says, this will do this. This will do this. This will do this and program. Mm-hmm. But everything that's happening on the back end when I make those subroutine calls is I'm passing that off to this main Renishaw program. And then it's doing layers deep of subprogram calls with all this crazy macro and all these variables in it that I don't even understand. Yeah. And figuring out if I want the program to do something slightly differently, figuring out which program is even active at the moment that that thing I want to happen needs to happen is so hard because many of those programs, they're just being pulled up instantaneously on the screen, running through and gone. And -hmm. the probe's not even moving. They're just confirming calibration things. It's like you press cycle start and four programs flash past on the screen and go, hmm. Yeah. And they're all subbed out, subprograms. 
Yeah, we've we typically don't use those. Okay, so we use the Haas control a lot of those things. So there's a Renishaw Inspection Plus, yep. which that's not included, but it's easily accessible. But we found that in the Haas control, some of those canned probing things, they're fine, but just let them do their thing. There's inefficiencies, let it be inefficient. The solution is not to solve those little inefficiencies like what you're talking about. We found that the solution is to write our own. Then we're yep. more familiar with it. You mentioned something earlier, bringing legacy data from Inventor into Fusion. So I've been a long time SolidWorks user up until 2015. And there's still like legacy stuff, something, a very minor component that we, I, I don't know, we probably do 500 per year. It was just written and programmed right the first time. If I go back and I want to do another revision of, of the larger assembly, I go, oh, that's an imported file because it has no parametric model data at the bottom. Yep. I've opted to just go back in and 100% design them in Fusion because there's been years where like John, my prototype machinist, he and I will be working on something and we just can't select an edge. Or when we go to generate a toolpath on an edge, it doesn't generate. We're going, what the heck is happening? Okay, blow it up draw something like we've actually extruded one tenth smaller. If we're you're machining a boss, yep. extrude do a one tenth offset, extrude it, and it's not going to change much dimension wise. Then it finds it just fine because it was created in fusion. It's those little things that you just go, yeah. why is the technology getting in my way? That's one of the things we stand against. Yeah. Like, technology should never get in our way. It should help us, not hurt us. I am far from a power user when it comes to CAD CAM stuff. I normally find a way that works for me. And then it's really easy to just say, okay, well, this is like a 40% solution, but it is a solution. Yep. And then for the next four or five years, just keep flogging that 40% <laughs> solution <laughs> along the shoulder of the road. I'm like riding on two wheels and two rims. Yeah. And it's just like two tires and two rims. And I'm just along the side of the road. I'll get there. Yeah, but you're I'll getting get all there. the way to California yeah. eventually. Yeah, I just you and I both know other machinists that they're always pursuing perfection, and if that's their thing, great, more power to them. They want nice shiny stuff. They want it down to the tenth. But when I look at some of the speed of those businesses or individuals, they're their own worst enemy. And there's a reason why you know in GDNT a standard tolerance is plus or minus five thousands. Our standard tolerance in the shop is plus or minus two and a half thousands. We should be at least double better. Double? Yeah, that's right. Twice as good. That's what I'm trying to say. Twice as good as industry standards. But yeah, the fact that you're just like, you know what? It works. It's making parts. I think there's a lot to be said about that, but no one will ever share that on social media. We want the nice, shiny perfection. We want to indicate our work holding where when we sweep it with the dial indicator, it doesn't even move and you wonder if the stylus is even touching the part. But the truth is the pursuit of perfection is the enemy of progress. Absolutely true. So I'm going to say it, and it sounds like you're saying it too. Well, what I'm saying is I have to pick my battles. There's that meme. It's like, okay, pick fewer battles. How many battles do you want? All of them. Oh, pick fewer battles. No, <laughs> put some more back. Yeah. Put a few more battles back. Yeah. Now half that many battles. Just like, don't, sure. don't pick all the battles. Yeah. And there are lots of battles that I don't pick but there are also things that just kind of hover ominously in the background of my mind mm -hmm. about how my shop works. And I go, that is a long-standing liability. 
that makes us unable to take on certain kinds of jobs easily, requires me to be hands-on at the machine anytime that part is run, Mm -hmm. exposes us to an unacceptably high risk of error in the process of running that part. And those things, they just nag at you, even when you're not actively running those parts, knowing that those landmines are still out there in the field and you may have to walk there again. Mm -hmm. Or your employees are walking them. Is psychologically draining. doesn't feel good. It doesn't help me do good work. You just touched on something super important. And I'm going to make more content about this because it's the way that I think the picture, and I think I've mentioned this before, the a three-legged stool where the three legs are time, money, and energy. You just talked about energy. So both of us are running mature businesses, time and money. Maybe those are a little bit more abundant than were in earlier years, but it's that energy stuff that will zap your energy. And then when Andrew Henry is out on the shop floor, Andrew Henry isn't doing Andrew Henry work. He's doing work that should be delegated and there's energy taken away and money because Andrew isn't growing the business. He's working in the business, not on it. Yeah. I'm a generally pretty high energy person. And so there has been an ability, an opportunity for me to kind of ignore that problem. But seasonally it crops up, like kids just started back to school, a lot of stuff's going on. And if I'm keeping my chin above water most of the time, Mm -hmm. every once in a while the tide comes all the way in and like it's all the way up to the ceiling of the room and I'm bumping my head against it and I can't get up there to get in the air. Yep. Like tax season is like that every year when it comes time to double checking everything, signing all the forms, reviewing the returns, all that stuff. I just found that I'm in a room and all of a sudden it's full to the top of the water and it feels terrible. Mm-hmm. Taxes uh, in general, anytime taxes come up, it just sucks the life out of me. Oh yeah. Yeah. I ran across every now and then, maybe once a year you run across a principle or a video or a line in a book that you can sense it's life changing or career changing or directionally changing. I ran across this video of Elon Musk. He's standing at Starbase in front of their starship. And it's this interview with this guy, YouTube channels, Everyday Astronaut. And it was a long interview, but the one thing that stood out, which has been clipped many times by different creators is Elon Musk's five steps towards developing better processes. And I put this in a talk I gave recently. Man, it when I heard it, I went, oh my gosh. First of all, I knew it was right because I had lived what he's talking about. Let me go over these. The first one is question the requirements and assumptions. Number two would be remove unnecessary processes or steps or components. That's kind of what you talked about. Take away those battles and then the ones that are left over, cut them in half. Yep. He said, you're not cutting enough if you cut it and it's okay. You should be cutting way too much and then going, oh, we shouldn't have cut that and then added some stuff back. That's his definition. Third thing would be optimize the design. Okay. the What was that quote you and I've talked about where the worst thing an engineer can do is to optimize something that shouldn't exist? Engineers spend their lives optimizing processes that shouldn't exist. Yeah, that's right. So third Fourth is accelerate with existing processes. I would say, hey, the tools that you have at hand, just run with those. Let's see if you can run a race with your current vehicle. And if you can cross the finish line in a decent time, then maybe upgrade. Or musical terms, hey, can you nail this lick with the $500 guitar you're playing? If you can't, you don't get to buy the $1,500 guitar. Nail it on the $500 one. 
And the fifth one was automate in areas that, and these are my words, are dumb, dirty, and dangerous. Automate would be last. And a lot of times, and I've made this, this mistake, is jumping right towards automation. And I go, oh my gosh, this made it harder. Because I now I made it a stupid process. Exactly. Yeah. And now my time is taken programming a robot to do dumb, dirty, and dangerous work. And guess what? The robot is dumb, it's blind, and it has no sense of feel. I need to program it for everything to do when things don't go perfectly as I plan. So I thought that was super insightful. I'm sharing it. I'm kind of rolling it out to my team. For the most part, this is an interesting fact. So it's been a little bit slow lately. It's the summer slump. And there's like a vibe, like at this point in any other company, you'd get laid off at this point. But when we look back historically, we're doing about the same amount that we averaged in 2018. In 2018, we had maybe one or two fewer machines. We had the same number of people on the shop floor. And we felt like we were running ragged. We were always running on fumes. Now, we have the same productivity. It's actually up just a little bit. And it feels like there's not much to do. And that's just a testimony to the investment of going into automation. And automation is expensive when you start buying into it. But getting the things online, running, producing correctly, high quality, repeatability, all that stuff. But it really, like, I got to commend my team. Like, they take one step at a time. They don't rush themselves. If it's complicated or it's like piece breaking, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to slow down. We're going to make these parts with the equipment that we have on hand. Then once we've maximized that, then we go to automation. And I feel like I'm, I finally come full circle, like 15 years into this company going, okay, we know how to make parts and deploy automation at the appropriate time. Yeah. I would say your R650s, that's a great step that you took. Well, so for, for us, one of the projects that we're working on right now is finding a way to automate chip clearance, cleaning off our pallets before they come out of the machine. And the current goal is to have a compact air knife spindle mounted, driven by CTS air blast, and then just run it over the fixture like a face mill after the last trimming op is done before it even comes out into the loading area. We had to get some tool holders for that. I had to get some through spindle pull studs. We still have to plumb in air because our machines did not have air purge as a spec. And so we've got to add filtration and a regulator to the back of the machine and plumb in a line that allows us to direct that air through the CTS lines through the spindle. And then we should be able to use the machine's existing CTS M codes to trigger that, turn it on and off, and then just figure out how to program that because an air knife is not round. And so the rotation of it, the orientation of it is going to matter. So rather than just get a kind of tool holder where we could just thread the thing in exactly, we actually went and had an adapter machined, an O-ringed adapter with a quarter-inch NPT in the tip of it that allows through air so that we can thread the air knife fully into it, get it nice and tight, and then clock the whole assembly in the holder in relation to where the drive keys are on the holder to make sure that when we say, okay, we want to lock the spindle orientation at this angle that we can control the air knife and make sure it's perpendicular to the direction of travel so we get good coverage as we face mill over the part with it. Yeah. What's um, the width of the air knife? Two and a half inches. Okay. Yeah. Fairly small. And it's on and center? Say it's what? On cent- it's on center with the tool holder? On center on the holder. Yep. Yeah. Great. 
at some point I'll do either a video about it or some an Instagram short thing about it. I'll send you a picture on Signal right now real fast. Have you seen our air knives? I've seen I'm not sure. We kind of don't show them off that much. We have them mounted on the side of the spindle. So on the bottom of the Haas spindle, there's always two holes Yep, for a tool block. We made a bracket that holds any width and we go with X-Air. Oh, gosh, I thought I had one on my desk. Nope. But yeah, it, it has a like quarter tapped threads every, I think, two inches. So yep. some machines have 18, 12. I think one machine has a six inch wide air knife. Because They're of the great. style of tool changers. Yeah. On the brother, mounting anything to the actual spindle housing is really hard. Yeah. You you literally probably can't, right? Because I mean, it retracts. Th- you can put a very, very compact coolant ring. And I actually remember, I'm trying to think who it was, was working on a design for a really compact coolant ring that would attach. But yeah, there really isn't very much room there. What about the front of the spindle? Nothing touches that, right? No, there's guide rails and things on the front of the spindle that actually contact the grippers. It, okay. There's not a lot of room there. It's not like you don't have this big square thing that a mm-hmm. sidearm tool changer reaches in under from one side. The entire spindle is kind of enclosed inside the tool carousel. Right. And that, that tool changer goes completely up and down inside there. Yeah. I thought I had a brother catalog within arm's reach, but it has, yeah, it has rails on the front, right? That yes. moves the, what is it? What do they call that? Is it a carousel? We, I just call it an ATC, the tool yeah. wheel, the tool carousel. Okay. But on the R series, it's a chain link based loop. On the Speedios, it's a rigid wheel. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. That's what yours is, the rigid wheel? The, our R series machines are all a chain link based. Chain. So they run in kind of a racetrack shape. The carousel itself is flexible, okay. which is kind of weird. It sounds a lot worse. The big solid ring on the Speedios, tool changes really quietly and quickly. I love it. The chain on the R series is like, like every time it changes position, it's loud. And the first time I tool changed on our brand new R650, I was convinced I'd just broken something because I was so unused to that sound at that step in the process. It was yeah. not pleasant. Wow. And I still don't like the sound of those tool changes. It's, it sounds bad to me. It sounds like the machine's being abused, but yeah, it's not. We're doing it correctly. Yeah. But yeah, the goal is to have a small air knife in a tool holder, in the spindle, running over the part like a face mill, blowing on the chips off before the table turns to bring the part out to the load area so that we have less chips, less offcuts, less junk piling up in that outside work area and less stuff getting blown out of the machine by the operator blowing off the parts with the door open Got or it. even partly open. Yeah. I'm looking at the but, photo you sent me. No, that's great. So, okay. So you got to orient it. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. Makes so sense. because we're using an end mill style holder, we're going to be able to clock it and then lock it in place with a set screw and then make sure everything's good. And then we didn't have the adapters made with a welding flat on them because obviously the orientation of the actual air knife is going to depend on how far it threads into the adapter. Sure. And so we have to get that all tight, make sure that's airtight, then clock the air knife in relation to the holder itself, then mark the adapter, take it back out and put a little flat there Uh so that we can reliably lock it in that orientation. Yeah. Hey, the air connections you're doing, is that DIY or is it brother certified or? Oh, it's DIY. Yeah, it's DIY, but have you confirmed with brother that you can actually do that? Yes. Okay. Yes. The origin of this project came from talking to several brother engineers about how to integrate an air knife. And we had initially planned to put it on the sheet metal of the bulkhead wall 
just over the turntable so that the table would sort of pass under an active air knife when it was rotating. But that mm-hmm. would still leave us exposed to blasting some chips out the loading door because we'd be mm-hmm. mid-turn when the chips were getting blasted. And one of the apps guys was like, well, why don't you just put the knife in the spindle? And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I don't, I don't have air blast. He goes, oh, that's easy to set up. We've done things like that where you have an air tool in the spindle. Here's how you do it. Here's where you plumb it, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be an official Yamazan install, but I ran it by them. They're like, yes, very, very doable. Yeah. And helped answer my questions as I was figuring out how I wanted to make it work. So mm-hmm. hopefully well, but- in the next few weeks, we'll get that rolling. So the reason I ask is because I had a conversation with a guy recently where, yeah, I'm pretty sure he had a Haas. And when they change tools, there is like an air blowout for chips or whatever yes. coolant. Yep. But when he wanted to upgrade it, the factor, the HFO told them, oh, no, you can't do that. That's a relatively low air pressure. You have to get this kit. And they bought him a kit and it had new bushings and all these connections and rotary unions. And it wasn't as easy as like just hijacking that existing through spindle air and pumping it instead of the 20 PSI to 120 PSI. So there are two things there that we were thinking through. The first one is that air spindle purge, which is designed to just keep chips and things out of the taper, is lower pressure. It's not air blast right. the same uh-huh. way, but also it is fed off the air systems internally in the machine. And since we are also feeding air to our smart vac systems, we actually want the spindle air blast for this chip thing to be plumbed in separately outside the machine to our main airline. So we're not pirating air supply from other things. They talked about, there was a particular case where one of my apps guys was describing a situation where another customer with an R series machine was running into low air pressure alarms in the middle of a cycle. And they couldn't figure it out and couldn't figure it out and couldn't figure it out. And then found out that the dudes out in front of the machine were using a little air-driven die grinder to deburr parts while the machine was running a cycle. And rather than plumb that in as an independent connection to the wall, they had just popped in a quick connector into the air supply on the infeed side of the machine. And so we're sharing, we're pirating air from the machine's internally pressurized system and it was dropping too low and triggering an alarm. Yeah. And I don't want anything like that. Like our air guns at the door for blowing off stuff are plumbed in outside the machine. They're plumbed in before air feeds into the machine. We didn't tap them off after the shutoff valve that feeds the machine. So that even if the machine is off, because the machine, brother machines, that spindle purge bleeds air continuously. It's not an in-cycle, out-of-cycle thing. Right. It, it pressurizes it pressurizes at higher. There's more air volume at a tool change. It blasts uh-huh. at the tool uh-huh. change. But if you have the machine sitting there and it's on and the spindle's empty and nothing's running, there is still a slow air purge flow happening all the time. And so we actually shut off the air at the back of the machines anytime we're not running them. Okay. Yeah. And we, but we still want the air guns at the door to be active. Even if the machine's at rest, it's not being actively run. If someone's cleaning off the table, getting ready for a fixture change, whatever, we want them to have access to air supply and not have that be dependent on the machine's supply. Mm. I love it. Have you considered some type of, well, wait, how are you turning off? Oh, you turn off the air supply to the machine when you're not running it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you would never be able to accidentally run the machine because it is the straight input. Yes. And when you turn off that air valve at the back, the machine 
throws a low air pressure alarm. So you yep. know the air is off. That makes sense. And you can't resume running the machine until you turn that back on. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Now, it's not super lean to have to walk around behind the machine. Maybe we could have a little electrical like solenoid push button, something or other that does that. But for the amount of time it costs us at this moment, it's not really worth me messing around with. I wouldn't even begin to criticize that because our Doosons, every Doosan needs to be turned on from behind the machine anyways. So you're going back there. So yeah. you're just, you just put yourself on the same level as a deuce on. So. Now, like the brothers have a breaker on the back of the electrical cabinet and then a power switch on the front control panel. And as a matter of habit, at the end of every day, when we're done, we e-stop all the machines, power them down, and then turn off the breakers at the back. On each machine? On every machine. And that's, I don't want the machines exposed to grid power when we're oh, not sure. there. Yeah. Even if the computer's not on, right. if the power feed into the machine is active, Stuff in the cabinet could get fried if we had a lightning strike or a big surge or something. Mm -hmm. And so since we have to walk back there in the morning to power the machines up anyway, turning the air on also is not that big a deal. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We do something similar. It's not for weather concerns. We don't really have lightning out here, but we just turn off the power to the main transformers because they consume power even when no power is flowing. So our power bill goes up at 4 p.m. It almost doubles. So, okay. So in summer, we, cl- we shut down at three o'clock in winter. It'll be closer to four o'clock. And if the guys go late, I'm like, Hey, let's wrap it up. Oh, we got in late today. Okay. We're still wrap it up. Cause you'll see these little spikes of power usage. And the biggest thing is the air compressors. I always tell yep. them just turn those off first. There's residual air in the tank, and then you can go power off machines towards the end of the day. But yeah, same so kind you see of the power spike, is that because your rate changes at peak the, usage? The rate changes, yeah. yeah. It's crazy from for commercial, at least on the plan we're on, is peak usage is from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. because they think we're like a restaurant or a store or something. But the off-peak, there's super off-peak, which ends at something like 8 a.m. And then from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., it's considered off-peak for commercial. But yeah, so hmm. 4 to 9, unfortunately... If we're doing lights out, we're not going to keep the machine off until 9 p.m. We're already gaining so much from productivity. So just run it through a machine simply shut off at 3, 4 in the morning, something like that, or 1 or 2 in the morning. But yeah, if you're looking to cut power as one of your revenue generating strategies, you probably need to do better in other areas of the company if that's something you're trying to save pennies there. But as a matter of principle, as a bootstrapper in me, yeah, machines are definitely off at four o'clock. That connects to the whole question of, do you primarily think of your business in the terms of top line or bottom line? And when I talk to business owners, those are two very different ways of thinking about the business. Mm-hmm. And one is like, okay, yes, I can look throughout the shop at every place where a pinhole leak is bleeding a little bit of money at a time out. Or I can say, I can go out and get another $50,000 worth of work for the shop. Yeah. I'm never going to have a bucket that has zero leaks in it. There's always going to be a hole in the bucket somewhere. Sure. And obviously, like a gaping hole, I want to plug. If we have our machines sitting on all like in the morning, before we turn on the machines, we talk about what's running for the day. And it's very often on certain days that certain machines do not get powered on at all at any point the entire day. Hey, we have no jobs scheduled for that machine today. Do not turn it on. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there's no point to yeah. turning it on. Yeah. But 
if all of our machines were always being turned on every day and we're consuming air and consuming power, even just idling, like whenever I get somewhere in my car, oh, I'm 20 minutes early, the place isn't open yet. I do not sit in my car with it on and idling. Even if it's mm-hmm. hot, I just turn the car off. And that's partly probably a family habit. My mom was death on idling cars. She's just like, turn it off. <laughs> You're not driving. Turn it yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> and growing up in upstate New York, we had a lot of cold winters. I spent a lot of mornings out in the snow scraping ice off windshields. And it was a revelation to me as an adult that for about a buck, if- I could go out. 15 minutes ahead of time, turn my car on and let it defrost, de-ice all its own windows. Yes. That didn't exist to me. It never occurred to me as a thing that someone could do. That's good (laughs) stuff. And then I got my first house that had a garage and like it's snowing outside or it's drizzly freezing rain and my car is parked inside. And the next morning I'm going to get up and get out the door at 5 a.m. And I walk into my garage. My car is completely clean and dry. Yeah. I don't have to scrape anything off. It's 60 degrees on the inside. It's unbelievable. (laughs) But that top line, bottom line thing is I can spend a lot of time, almost all my lean improvements are about bottom line things. I'm not making a lean improvement that's going out and getting a new client. I'm making a lean improvement that saves us a few minutes here or a few minutes there or a few bucks here or a few bucks there on things we're already doing. And realizing that if the goal is to show an extra $100,000 in profit at the end of the year, that I'm probably not going to 3D print my way to that goal. I'm probably going to need to go out and kill a buffalo and drag it back to the shop. Yeah, that is that much more. I think you and I are at a disadvantage of as being founders is that we needed to pinch pennies in our startup years. Yeah. And so here we, that just doesn't die. I get that. The way I think about it, is it's kind of both. Yeah, I should be putting out more content. I should be producing new products, having a hand or at least a vision for new processes. But at the same time, I do know that big failures are a culmination of little details. And so, yeah, I know that four out of the 12 machines leak probably a half a CFM. (laughs) So I just can't look another way. The way I think about it in my head is, it's not my business. It's a business that gives me a regular paycheck. I'm a literal W-2. W-2, I think it's called. Yeah. Employee. I'm a W-2, but at the same time, all the revenue that comes in, I treat it like we're a bank and that is depositors money that we're called to manage. So are we leaking deposited funds? Yeah. Well, we need to stop that, but we also need to go out and get new clients as well. So But no, you're totally right as the top line is what you and I should be focused on. It isn't that we have to be exclusively focused on it because there are lots of companies out there that just have gaping holes in the bucket and they're just trying to fire hose money into it from the top to make sure the bucket stays full Mm -hmm. when it would cost very little, relatively speaking, to actually just plug that hole in the bucket. And oftentimes that hole in the bucket is going to produce product failures and poor customer experiences and brand damage. It's not just about financials. If I knew that one out of every 10 holsters that we sent out was going to immediately break in the field because we'd built it wrong, that's a hole in the bucket that I have to fix. And it's not even primarily about the dollars. It's not about the warranty replacements or the secondary shipping costs. It's about the customers having a terrible time with our product and 
disliking our brand afterwards because of that. Mm -hmm. And so it is easy for me to default toward chasing bottom line savings. And they're really gratifying. That whole penny saved is a penny earned thing gets even bigger when you're saving hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars. You're like, yes, that's money. But it's easy to focus on that because those are things you actually see. The losses are actual. The unrealized potential of not going out and getting that new job or not going out and getting that new client is completely theoretical. You can't count it. It's a bird in the bush. This lean improvement in the hand is worth two potential clients in the bush that I don't know if I'll actually get. And and it's also harder work to go get them. And I'm more likely to fail at it. Yeah. And when I'm making lean improvements, failure is a feature. That's called iteration. We yeah, try right. things out it's until they fail, then we iterate and then improve them. But if I spend a bunch of time and energy trying to pitch a new client and we don't get them, I don't get to iterate and ask them to go round around with me again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gosh, if there is a flaw to lean methodology, it's, well, it obviously is focused on the production side of it, but it's not focused on the big picture side of business going and getting the work. If you don't go get the work, there's nothing to build. There's nothing to eliminate waste on. I really appreciated Paul Van Meter talking about how it was a huge light bulb moment when he was running a shop before he split off and did pro shop that when business was great and they were slammed, their sales guys needed to be out there killing it and making calls. When you're busy, 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 you need to sell, sell, sell. And the reason was that there's a long enough pipeline to getting the work in the door that if you take your foot off the gas, when the shop is busy, by the time it's palpable that the shop is slowing down, if you go get more work that day, you're not going to have it on your floor soon enough to avoid that crash dip. Right. And it's really counterintuitive. If everybody is scrambling, everybody's running on fumes, the machines are booked up for weeks in advance to have the owner of the company telling the sales guys, I need you to find me five new clients in the next two weeks. Find me projects. Because it feels like you're just trying to Cram more corn down the goose's throat. Yeah. But recognizing how the time frame for those projects actually works. If I had known how our August was going to feel back in May, I would have worked harder in May to get new projects lined up for August. That's right. And you can have that happen to you repeatedly and go, oh, I need to learn a lesson from that. When we're busy, I need to go out and find more things to do. Because inevitably, there's going to be some kind of a dip coming and I want those projects in the pipeline. But then when you're busy, you always feel I'm in over my head and I'm asking for more. It's just mm -hmm. not going to go well. It's going to be too much. Yeah. Counterintuitive to a T. But you can go out and you can have eyes bigger than your stomach. You can go out and bring in more work than you can actually do. And a great way to lose a client is to bring them in and then burn the initial project to the ground and miss all your deadlines because you didn't actually have a plan. You brought the project in assuming that space would open up, and then for some reason it didn't, and then you do a bad job delivering on your first go-round, and then they're gone forever. The bridge is completely burned. Mm -hmm. Yep. I've experienced that for sure. Not fun. Wow. I'm trying to avoid that. I actually just this past week turned down a potentially relatively large longish term project 
because as I looked at it, there was nothing about it that we couldn't do. But the amount of design and programming time that was going to be required on the front end from me personally to get it stood up even to the testing stage and really get some traction for it was going to be hard to quantify and potentially a lot of time. And even though the shop is relatively calm right now, we're not super busy on the production side, that's on the production side. I have tons of work to do. And so adding more work that's going to be heavily front-loaded on me before it impacts the production side is a bad use of my time. And so I just passed on the whole job. Even though we could definitely use the production work, the question would be, if I could snap my fingers and have that whole project take a hop, skip, and a jump over me and go directly to the shop floor and be in production next week, we would absolutely do it. We'd crush Mm -hmm. it. Yep. But- I'm the bottleneck that job has to get through. And I don't know how long that tunnel would be before we could actually put parts on the floor and have the employees start making them. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, can we switch gears? Cause it's sure. something you said you used to sell those vacuum forming devices, right? You were putting them together. Yeah, we still Swift? do make and sell We call it a Swift press. It's yeah. a small aluminum non-membrane thermoforming press. What are the components? Does it actually heat it as well? No, it doesn't. It's just a vacuum table. Okay. So you have to supply your own heat. Some guys use ovens. Some guys use t-shirt presses. T-shirt uh-huh. presses generally are faster and heat more consistently because it's direct surface-to-surface contact heat with the plastic. But those vacuum tables have become really popular among kind of mid-tier serious hobbyist holster makers and small companies. If you're making a handful of holsters a year for you and your buddies, Investing in an all machined aluminum deck is just not necessary. You can Mm -hmm. build your own out of melamine. You can build your own out of a scrap piece of Corian. You can build your own out of a piece at one inch thick HDPE. It's not that complicated. It literally is just a flat deck with four feet, a plumbing fitting, and an adjustable frame. Got it. If you're using it all the time and you need something that's not going to warp, that's going to stay flat, it's going to be thermally stable, that can deal with the heat of cycle after cycle after cycle of hot plastic getting slapped down onto it then it's really nice Mm -hmm. and it's robust. It's sturdy. It feels nice to use. All the edges are chamfered. Everything about it is nice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we still make those. Okay. Because we talked about this literally years ago of making some Kydex covers for PPS, MPS. Yes. And I'm like, gosh, did we do that now? Because the only reason, what stopped me last time is that it required like kind of a higher flow vacuum pump. Obviously, we make vacuum pumps. Ours are high level. Yeah, uh, low flow. Now I have yep. the opposite because I, I think I told you we bought a large format CNC router. And so we have these two double barrel mega vacuum pumps. Yep. So I go, okay, well, there's the vacuum pump part of it. Then yep. I go, do I really want to invest the time and energy designing something when Andrew Henry could just make it for us? And it's going to be a bunch of back and forth. I'd rather take that back and forth and just put it back and forth within these four walls, not yep. our collective eight walls. Yep. So I'm thinking, well, do I talk to him about getting that? So, okay, talk to me about the heating element. You can put the t-shirt heating element directly on Kydex. doesn't melt it. So you have to, to have a Teflon sheet in between. So we okay. use magnets and magnet some Teflon to the upper heating element. And then you set your time and temperature to get the plastic to the rate of flexibility that you want. You just close and lock the t-shirt press. Timer goes off, machine beeps. You pop it open, pull your plastic out. The open time is very short. You start dropping temperature very fast. 
once you're out of the heater. So you have to get it onto your mold and then get it under vacuum to full pressure very quickly. Got it. Otherwise, your ability to actually capture all the contours and get good definition goes away fast. Hmm. But the challenge is the taller your part is, the more vertical displacement you have, the more likely you are to get wrinkles around the edge because the material, if you take a flat piece of fabric and you set it over a pop can all the way down to the table, you're going to have folds. The only way to avoid folds is to actually stretch and thin the material. So it kind of like shrink wrap pulls down around it. And you can do that. But when you thin the material, you are actually thinning the material. If you're just making a protective cover to keep junk off, thinness of material is probably not as big an issue. When you're making components like holsters that need to have a significant amount of strength, part thinning in internal corners and drafted areas is potentially a very big deal and can create significant structural weaknesses at key transition points in the shape. So for a long time, we used a larger format automated vacuum former that you lock your plastic sheet into a frame. The frame is run into an oven. All this is automated. You just set all your settings and you press go. And then when it's heated for the right amount of time, the frame retracts out. The mold bed is pneumatically raised and pushed up into the plastic. And then the vacuum pump opens a valve and applies vacuum. You've pre-vacuumed a large surge tank. So you're hitting the plastic with a bunch of pre-vacuum volume all at once. You evacuate all your air and then a cooling fan turns on, cools the parts. When the parts are cool, the mold bed pneumatically retracts down and pops the molds out of the plastic. Then you open the frame and take the whole sheet out. There are parts of that that are really, really good. And there were parts of it that I really liked, but we had a lot of issues on that machine because the edges of your sheet are all fully constrained that when it needs to conform to vertical changes, it can't pull the edges of the sheet in and make slack. It only conforms through stretching and thinning the media. Yeah. And on the Swift press, the nice thing is you lay your mold down, you lay your hot sheet over it, and then you drop a frame around your mold but the frame is single-sided and it doesn't constrain the edges of the sheet. So the sheet can pull in at the edges where there's more demand for material because of vertical and draft. And you can still end up with wrinkles at outside corners and things. If you have a very tall mold, tall things, anything over inch and a half, inch and three quarters high is much more susceptible to getting wrinkles at corners, getting folds. But by allowing the edges to remain free, you dramatically reduce the amount of parts thinning you see mm-hmm. in places because you can make it up by just pulling in more slack. Yeah. So that's made it uniquely suitable for holster making where the molds tend to be shallow, rarely over an inch tall, and structural strength is a high priority. Man, the, everything you've just said is just another skill, another technique that we would bring into the company that I'm convinced we're going to kick this can down the road that <laughs> answered everything. We're kicking it over to you. Because really, the cover for the PPS, what are we going to sell it for? Most likely, it's going to be included in a starter yep. package. And so we're investing all this time, money, effort, skill into developing something that shows up free. I, yeah. I don't know. Well, depending on how many of them you use, injection molding gives you a much stronger part, probably, and mm. maybe a part that has better resistance to chemicals and fluids in the machine. Yep. I've never actually tried to use Kydex. It, I recall from the spec sheet that it's supposed to have good chemical resistance, but a lot of plastics don't like machine coolants much at all. Right. 
And they're the worst of both worlds. There's an oil and there's a water-based element. Yeah. Yeah. But it might be possible to make some prototypes and not have that be a complicated or expensive process and then just try them out. Yeah. Say, okay, let's just stick this in a machine. Every day at the end of work, we just clear off the pallet, stick it in the machine, make sure we get some coolant on it, get it nice mm-hmm. and wet, leave it overnight, every night for the first few weeks and see how's it doing. Yeah. But devil's advocate is there's lots of coolants out there. Eventually one is going to attack the material. Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. So you made covers for your mini pallet systems, right? We did not actually. We looked okay. at it. We designed right. one. We were going to- We have um, one. Did we machine that or did you machine it? Send it. I to machined us? that. Okay. Yeah. Send it we, to us. We, I have a design file still for a machined HDPE pallet, pallet topper. Yeah. It's not kind of an umbrella cover that wraps over the sides of the MPS. It okay. just- Sits on top of the MPS, covers the flat plates, the pins, and the ball lock. Right. But it doesn't keep coolant from sort of leaching under there. It would just keep chips and things from piling up. So what we know now is I'm not even sure that might be a something that we should entertain. Okay, I got a call from a customer. He said, hey, I just got a brand new rotovice. <laughs> Poor guy. And they're kind of like a prototype shop or an R&D shop. That's kind of what I, I got. He said, we don't use it all the time. And so what I did is I took a trash bag and I wrapped it over it and then I kind of like zip tied it. When we ran for a couple months, the job popped up or the application where we wanted to run the rotovice again. And keep in mind, the rotovice is cast iron. You look at it wrong and it rusts. He took the bag off. It's red, rust everywhere. And I went, oh no. When he told me he put a trash bag over it, I went, uh-oh. He's like, oh, Not you know where this is going. So maybe putting a cover on these things would rust. Well, okay, our pins, that's the only thing that would rust on the top. Everything else is hardened stainless. But yeah, that was just a crushing conversation. I'm like, yeah, there's, I can't really help you on that. You're going to get a bunch of Scotch-Brite and you're going to hit that, a lot of el- elbow grease and don't cover it again. It's better to keep it exposed in the machine. Under like coolant. get lubricated with coolant. And- yeah, and the water evaporates off instead of being like a, a rainforest in there. Poor guy. But yeah, I got to think through that. The other thing is I've considered getting our pins, some type of coating, like the tools like Altin or, or yep. yeah, those types of things. I think it would look cool. The only thing is those pins are super close tolerance and yep. those coatings do build up also tenths, mm-hmm. and tenths matter. So yep. I don't know. I might just go that direction because we've had some bases that we service, like customer will send it in. Hey, it's been six, seven years. We just want you to look at it. Always the pins are rusted out on the bottom side, not on the top because those get exposed on the bottom, the threads. And I think one thing that we've stopped doing, and I think we're going to permanently stop doing is after heat treat, they would come back to us and they would have heat scale and we would bead blast them. That's like creating a sponge-like surface for those chemicals, whether it's water or some type of whatever people are running to just leach onto the material. So we've stopped that. Now we turn the entire profile, not just the contact profiles, but it would be nice to go back to bead blast, turn the contact profiles so they're nice and shiny, and then send them to, I think, a tin coating or a, or zirconium. I think that looks pretty sharp. Or what's the other one that they put on steel end mills? I'm not sure you would know this. T-I-A-L-N. Yeah. Like the dark gray stuff. So yeah, these are the ideas I'm kicking around. Maybe if we have an, a way to our listeners to reach out to us, we'll probably set up a shared email account or something where they send in their suggestions on how we could make those pins better. I'm open to that. 
Yeah. I have not had a lot of problems with ours, but I'm sure that if I pulled them out, that the underside would probably be rusty. Probably. Yeah. And actually funny for us, like since most of our machines are run dry all the time, we have to be careful about not putting handprints on vices and tables. Interesting. Because I'm trying to think what it was. There was one summer we were working and we, I don't know if somebody had sweaty hands or what, but I came in on a Monday, I opened the machine and clear as day, there was this rusted thumbprint (laughs) on the table. And somebody had just put their hand on the edge of the table and leaned down inside the machine to grab something. And there was this perfectly rusted thumbprint on the table. I'm like, oh guys, we can't keep doing that. Yeah. And well, if that, it's a thumbprint, you could definitely see who's. Oh who, yeah, who everybody it. over here, show me your hands. Yeah. You, you get the scotch break. It's good stuff. But recognizing that that's a thing that machine toolmakers just sort of assume. Okay, well, this is going to get lubricated and coated with with coolant. It's going to be protected. It's not going to be a permanently exposed surface that's just dry to the right. air. Yep. And so we do have to be conscious about not putting hands mm-hmm. on the cast iron table, not putting hands on the vice jaws and other things that are steel or iron. Yeah. Yeah. Cast iron, we have a process where once it comes out of the machine, we dunk it. It's some type of anti-corrosive where the water floats to the top. Um, I'm sorry, the bottom goes to the bottom and we dunk it and and dry it off. Just Southern California is really dry. It's like a desert type of environment, I suppose. But when I visited Florida a couple of years ago, it was funny because I would just walk in and surprise customers. I would just say, hey, I want to check out this area. I went to the Tampa area. And then what zip code is this? Great. Go through our records. Oh, we have five customers in this zip code. And I would just stop in and surprise them. That was a fun thing. I'll tell you more about that later. But it was funny because I would ask the customers, oh, tell me about the building. Do you own it? Do you rent it? What does it cost? What are the people like around here? Industry. Every time I asked, so is this climate controlled? The response was always the same. It was like this scoffing yes. Like, yeah, of course it is. And, and like the fourth or fifth guy I talked to, he went, yeah. I said, okay, I'm from what I gather, like you shops have to have air conditioning. He's like, well, yeah, but not so much for climate control, but for humidity Humidity. control. He said, if we don't run an air conditioner, this will become a literal sweatshot and everything will rust in here. Our machines, our parts, we need climate controlled environment. It's just part of doing business with metals. Yeah. We've had an extremely hot and humid week here in Indiana. This past week has been rough so much so that like our central ac has had trouble keeping up and in our front office we added a little window connected floor unit just has an exhaust that plugs into a vent that you stick in a window frame because we couldn't control the temperature it was very sunny it was extremely humid and it was very hot so Mm. mid to high 90s 90 plus percent humidity just you walked outside and just immediately were sticky yes instantly yeah Mm. and so we were really intense about making sure the doors stayed closed. Like I think we had one semi-delivery and it was like, all right, get it off the truck, get it ready to come inside, open the door, run the jack, close the door. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> because we did not want all that beautiful, cool, dry air wafting <laughs> out of the building. But yeah. in our old shop where we had one window AC unit and if you wanted to feel cool, you could go stand next to it but it didn't actually control the temperature in the shop very well. It was better than nothing. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of stuff, we would sit on a shelf for a couple of months, tools, whatever, and it would just rust. Mm. Gosh, I feel, 
that's one of the things just being here. We just, it's just one of the maintenance things we just don't think about. We'll have a vice. Okay. We hardly use vices around here when we do. Yeah. If I were to take off the sliding jaw carrier, there would not be rust there. Mainly because obviously we run in a coolant environment and they would coat it, but it's just not, it doesn't get that way. Oh, you know what? We actually, we're our own worst enemy in the current building. We're putting in AC. It only had AC in the offices, but the guy's got these really great swamp coolers where it's fantastic when it's dry because we'll get like 20, 30% humidity. It's super low. The swamp coolers cools it off, but by two, three o'clock, right before closing, you walk out there and it just hits you in the face because now the shop, the building has heat up and we've bumped the humidity levels to the 70s, 80%. And it's like, nope. But then they cycle it the next morning, open all the doors. We have one, two, three, four exhaust fans that pull out that humid air from the day before, get that nice, dry, cool morning air, and then the process repeats. So we're also excited for AC. Although it's I almost, loathe swamp coolers. Yeah. Oh yeah. I would I they should not be used in non-desert environments. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. The combination of high heat and high humidity is so unpleasant that the idea of choosing to do anything that will, by necessity, raise my humidity is just a hard nope. Nope. Yep. Uh-uh. Well, well, look at humanity. Humanity never really developed in hot, humid places. It developed in cool, drier climates in northern hemispheres. More extreme he- hemispheres, I get north and south, but... No, there's something. That's where all the crazy people were. That's right. I like it. The conquerors, right? So how was DSI? Yeah, it was a great event. I gave a talk there. I would say, well, I opened my speech just talking about how excited I was. Those are my type of people. I think those are my exact words. And I said something like, not because we're fusion users or in manufacturing, but it's like, this is the cream of the crop of individuals that will actually pay money to fly or drive and stay someplace for a multi-day event to get better. And I just love that. Any person that's a continual learner, like I'm automatically endeared to. It was just a lot of familiar faces. I, oh, for example, when I say the name Dave Precise, what comes to mind? Orange gloves. That's right. <laughs> so I'm walking through the restaurant. It was on the campus of Cal Poly. It's a California Polytechnical University. And they had us eat at the lunch hall. And I was walking by and a guy pops up, hey, Jay, just wanted to meet you after all these years. My name's Dave. I'm Dave Precise on Instagram. And I went, oh yeah, orange gloves. He's like, yeah, that's me. That's kind of like his brand. Really great guy. It was neat because now I'm putting names to, not faces to Instagram handles is what was going on. Not real names. Yes. Internet names. Yeah. So it was really neat to catch up with a lot of people, a lot of familiar names. Saunders was there. Rob Lockwood, Al Wetmo, who runs the cam side of Fusion, CJ Abraham. Yep. Was okay. Tim Paul, one year Tim, was yep. not there. He's all banged up. Yeah. Um, poor guy. Man, yep. that, those leg injuries are rough. Yeah. Yeah. So he was not there. Gosh, I'm going to leave a lot of people out, but it was just good to see people. And I had a lot of people come up to me and say, Hey, man, it's been a long time. Last time I saw you was in either 2017 at a Saunders event. I don't think you were at that. It was an open house that Saunders put on yep. in Zanesville or 2018. Yeah. That's when we saw each other last at IMTS. And I realized, wow, that was like five and six years ago. 
Oh, things he, have changed. Yeah. Mariah, what's his yeah, name? Yeah, Easton Benrick, yeah. Warrior Manufacturing. Yeah, he came up to me because I kind of think of him as just a kid. But now he's like he's got a young man, adult. Totally legit. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's awesome. And he's like, hey, Jay, how's it going? I'm like, hi, what's your name? And he said, Easton. And I'm like, Easton Benrick. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I know him, know of, yeah, because we've DM'd over the years. But yeah, it was a really good event. I'd say my speech was a B minus because I went off topic. I kind of distracted myself, but the main principles, I was trying to give everyone a big picture view of automation. Work holding for automation is what I was tasked to speak on. I had the 4.30 PM slot. Everybody's tired. Everyone's tired. Everyone's just got done drinking out of a fire hose. It was overwhelming. So I went a little story-based. I pretty much started with the same story in my 2018 talk in Chicago because it's been five years. I'm not going to say most of the people there know me. So gave that talk, but it did dovetail into the bigger picture. And the one thing that I shared that that I got a lot of feedback, which I almost cut, was that one of our core principles, if not our main number one core principle, is the pursuit of peace in the workplace. Because no one talks about that. Like Everyone celebrates like the grind, the getting in early, the going home late, nights, weekends, overtime. For us, it's peace. Because if you prioritize peace in the workplace, you have happy employees, you have proven processes. If you deprioritize speed, now your quality level goes up and then you don't have angry customers screaming at you. And so if you actually slow things down and build things right and have a nice process, that's a far more peaceful environment. And it just trickles down. And profit is a byproduct of a peace-filled pursuit in the working environment. That really hit a lot of people because no one is talking about that. Everyone talks about top line but you can fake top line. Like I have friends that have multi-million dollar businesses, 15, $20 million businesses that they're like, yep, we made 200 grand last year. And I'm going, oh, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of work, a lot of headaches to squeeze out a couple hundred grand on profit. So for us, that, that was one thing I wanted to share. That either means they're really bad at business or they have an excellent accountant. <laughs> that's a good point. I never thought about that. And a safe packed with cash, apparently. Something. But no, I tied it in that automation done wrong. Like when I first bought my UR10 robot 10 years ago, that led to a broken working environment. And that was not peace inducing. And so my whole thing was telling people that like, hey, if you want to get into automation, don't overlook that three axis mill that you have right now. That is automation. It's automatic motion. There's a lot you can do. So I leaned in on like just kind of like standardized work, standardized work holding and choosing the right work holding for your goal. If you're prototyping, six inch vice, that's fine. If you have products that repeat and you do lots of volume, it's hard to beat a simple high density work holding setup. And then if you really have mastered that, then let's talk robotic arms. So yep. yeah, it went really well. Like I said, my people, I made some good new connections, met some fans of the channel, which I'd like to have those ongoing relationships with. Yeah, it was great. I would definitely recommend it when it comes to the East Coast. So this was funny. I'm a DSI client. We have our fusion seats through them. Oh, I didn't and know And I talked to Devin Dupuy occasionally. He's helped yeah. me figure out some things here and there. And I also have a ton of respect for anybody who's got their brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because I do that too. And I'm nowhere near that point. I know how hard that is. Well, actually, I don't know how hard. I have an idea how hard it is. I know how hard it's been to get to where I am. But 
the possibility of going to DSI in California, as soon as I saw the first email, I'm like, nope. It was just an immediate nope. Why? And well, so it was at an inconvenient time of year for me. Like this was the first week of school for my kids. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening right then. Yeah. And if I had put it on the calendar, it would have come for me and my family at a really, really difficult time when everyone's just bouncing off the walls at the end of the summer. School's about to start up. Sports about to start up. Our schedule just gets blown to pieces. We got to get this kid to swim practice and this yeah. kid to soccer. And it just, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. My wife probably would have had a meltdown on me if I was like, oh, by the way, I'm gone all next week. Right. It just would not have flown. Yeah. I would but, definitely go to the, the East Coast one. Yeah. Yeah. But May, March, uh, April, May. The flip side of that is I'm a firm believer in the you become like the people you hang out with. Absolutely. And that doesn't have to be in real life sitting down for a burger and a beer. That can be the people you surround yourself with in the environments you create for yourself online. Mm-hmm. And I was showing my employee Nick this morning. We were talking about cam templates and how people envision those sorts of workflows. And some people, do modular cam templates where they're like, okay, I have a bunch of roughing templates. I can drop those in. And I have some finishing templates. I could drop those in. And other people build complete templates, start to finish of all my roughing, semi-finishing, finishing for this kind of material or for this kind of part. You just grab the whole thing, drop it on your file. And I remember seeing something from Phil Butterworth, the Dr. Phil experience. Yeah, he was a couple there years too. ago. That's right. Yeah. He does work that blows my mind. And I remember him describing his workflow because he's dealing with palletized Matsuras and things where when he's dealing with a known envelope, work envelope size thing that he knows he's got good templates for, he will drop the roughing op on there, quickly post it out, run it through Camplete, send it straight to the machine, unproven, just send it. Yeah. And in the next 50 minutes while it's roughing out all this material, he's sitting there and doing all the semi-finishing and finishing ops. Yeah. So he's not so waiting until the whole thing is done and simulated all from scratch, start to finish. He's saying, my first two ops are good. Send them. Yeah. And while that's running, I'm going to program the next three ops and then send those. As soon as those first two finish, the next three are ready to go. And I will have the machine running continuously and I will be programming continuously. Yeah. And then I will be done programming and later the machine will finish machining and it will have been all done. Yeah. And that as a workflow blew my mind at the time totally. because the idea, I remember seeing a post where he said, hey, just programmed a new part, fired it off to the Matsura, unproven, didn't stand to the machine, just sent it. I'm leaving the shop to go run some errands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and internally, I just cringed at the thought of sending some program, some complicated five axis program over to a machine and sending it off and just sending it unproven. Yeah. But he knows his whole process. He's obviously, he's running complete. He's got good simulation. He's got good templates. He knows what he's doing, but he would never have arrived there accidentally. Mm-hmm. You do not get to that level of a robust process unless that's the level you're shooting for. Yeah. Otherwise, you cut so many corners and you take so many detours and you build in so many little exceptions and so many little quirks that you can never get all the way there. And- you know- Go ahead. Oh, you know, that that same talk stood out to me. It hit me like a ton of bricks where I realized we don't put speed as anywhere close to our number one thing. It's safety, quality, simplicity, speed, cost. So I thought about that. Like when he sends a program, a roughing operation, it's going to run for an hour. Who cares about the 
material removal rate. Just give it some very vanilla, dependable feeds and speeds and just hit start. One of the things that came up, I think Phil and I were on a panel. I can't remember. There's five other guys, but either he said it later or on that panel that it's all about trust. Like, do you trust your setup? Do you trust your operator? Would trust goes a long way? My comment to trust that kind of got that ball, that conversation started was if I can't give you to the, a key to the front door on your first day at work, you're just not going to work for me. Character goes so far. And then some of the guys said, yeah, speaking of that, there's trust. You have to have trust in your operations, your software, all that stuff. But man, when you talk about total throughput, Phil is not prioritizing a fast tool path. He's prioritizing no. a reliable one, but he himself is operating in a fast or quick because it's simultaneous effort. If you pushed the tool to uh, just before its breaking point, yeah, you got to stand there and watch it run with your finger on the feed hold button, but he doesn't. Let's just give it some like easy five or 10% step over, some 100 inches a minute, press start, walk away, then I'll program. So I love that yeah. perspective. If the goal was, I have to have this part done by 5 p.m., I've mm. got nine hours to do it, I can either spend most of the day programming and then send that program out to the machine at screaming speeds and feeds, try to get the whole thing done by the deadline, or I can just have the machine comfortably chooching along, making chips, mm -hmm. cruise control set at 28 miles an hour, and it will get there. That's right. Yeah. Gosh, here's the entrepreneur in me thinking, if you did have a fear of crashing and breaking stuff, you should throw a camera in the enclosure. And if you do have a crash, there's your YouTube channel. <laughs> you monetize that sucker. Full <laughs> send. How did you pay for your new spindle? YouTube views. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's part of what Titan Gilroy does. I remember there was some video, it was a, like a brand new DMG Mori, and they just did some absurd, like one and a half inch length of cut, full slotting in steel with this kind of metal end mill. Yeah, right. And at a certain point, you could see the tool holder start to pull out of the spindle. Uh-huh. And the video cuts or something? No, no, no. They ran the video, but I never saw that machine again in a single place on their oh, channel. That's I'm good. Like, did you <laughs> kill that on the first go round? Like, but yeah. for the views, amazing. Of course. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So on the, you surround yourself with the people you want to be like approach. I often feel conflicted about who I ask to spend time talking to me. I have a handful of guys who I've become close friends with, who I can call up and talk really candidly about hard business stuff and life stuff who are their own shop owners. But that's a pretty small group of people. And there's a much wider group of people that I talk to occasionally on Instagram who I know them a little bit. I'd recognize them if I saw them at IMTS. We could have a friendly conversation. But I don't really get to look behind the curtain in their shop and they don't really get to look behind the curtain in mine. I might send them a message and say, hey, I saw this really cool thing you did. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you programmed that or what the strategy was here or how you thought about this thing or that thing? And we'll have a brief conversation. But they're not people that I keep tabs on and stay in sync with long term. Mm -hmm. But there are obviously, you see other people who have those relationships like Grimsmo and Saunders. Those guys talk all the time about anything. You get the impression there's probably nothing that's not on the table in their conversations. Although what gets recorded on the bomb is a subset mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. And 
I have people who are outside machining who I have that kind of relationship with, who I can call up and talk to about anything. But anytime you see people who are doing a great job, they're building a company, they're growing, they're expanding, they're improving, I'm extremely conscious of how valuable their time is. Mm-hmm. And the idea of asking them to invest the time to build even a casual friendship with me, in addition to answering a few technical questions, seems like a real presumptuous thing. Mm. Wow. So I've never thought of it that way. My approach is if I reach out to someone that is kind of younger in business, I have more time than them. Okay. Do you ever think of it that way? Because I've I haven't thought systems. of it that way. Years ago, I used to get a lot more phone calls from holster makers because I put myself out there and would share my cell phone number around freely and say, hey, if you're starting in this business and you have questions, give me a call. Yeah. And I used to spend hours a month, hours and hours every month on the phone with guys who, they weren't necessarily younger than me, but they were starting their businesses or were yeah. early on in their businesses earlier than I was. And what I realized is I ended up telling a lot of these people the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because I had anything against any of them, but like the 30th time somebody calls you up and asks the same question, you're like, I need to either do a YouTube video about this. And stop taking these phone calls or just stop taking these phone calls Mm -hmm. because it's a really inefficient way. If I want to pay it forward and I want to share the fruits of some of the hard, stupid lessons that I've learned and help other people avoid standing on those same train tracks, doing it one-to-one through cold phone calls is just not an effective way to do it. Right. And it doesn't also allow those people to connect with each other, even having a YouTube video where various people can comment and see who else is commenting and then go follow those other people or an Instagram reel where people who are having the conversation can have the conversation in a shared group in that comment section. That is fundamentally better in a way than talking to people individually. Although you can sometimes say things really bluntly to people individually and when they explain what they're doing and you say, that is a horrible idea. Yeah. That's a horrible idea. You should forget it Mm. immediately. Yeah. You should not waste any more time, any more money, any more thought on that. That's a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love it. That usually lands harder when you're saying it person to person on the phone. <laughs> right. Because they can't say, oh, well, I just, it's just a, it's, he's talking in a YouTube video. He's not talking about me. My idea is brilliant. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. But yeah, DSI on the East Coast, I'd like to go to. Five years ago, the thing that would have kept me away from DSI was not time, it would have been cost. Mm -hmm. And I have not really updated to the point like business trips for the purpose of learning and growing and meeting people is not really a thing that I do. Mm. I go to IMTS because everybody's going to be there. And I know that the entire week that I'm there or the three days that I'm there or whatever, I'm going to have an opportunity to see things that are going to stretch my brain. I'm going to see machines and applications that will spark ideas and get me chewing on things. And I'm going to have an opportunity to meet a bunch of people who I would not have solely taken the trip for, Mm -hmm. but who I want to meet and network with. So I really enjoyed at last IMTS going to the Insta Machinist meetup at the Kern booth. First of all, it's super fun to have the president, the CEO of Kern pour you a beer. That's a trip. But to meet a whole bunch of guys, and I thought it was really wild that Kern hosted that. Obviously, the the Grimsmo connection is there. But I thought it was really promising that a company like Kern looks at this community and goes, most of these guys are never going to be our customers. The majority of machinists and shop owners in this group 
will not ever buy and in fact will not ever need yeah that's interesting you would think that haas would put that on that type of thing on yeah well eh, should i i don't know yeah who knows but certainly there are other brands that if i was involved in planning yamazin's week at imts i would absolutely have a garage shop brother owners meetup where it's like everybody who's got one speedio yeah. Because there's tons of those guys. Right. There are so many more of those than there were even six years ago that having the opportunity to build those relationships, there is tons of value in knowing other owners who use the same machinery you do. Mm-hmm. They just, they're going to learn things you haven't learned and you can just port that information over and not say, okay, conceptually, I see what you did, but you're on a Mazac. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea. Yeah. You did that all on Mazatrol. I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, you program that really cool thing when conversational on your Herco? I have no idea. That's a point of frustration for me for some of these bigger brands. Like, what are they now? DN Solutions. Like, they they need to have a YouTube channel that is robust. That if they want to knock out Haas as the number one domestic builder, they need to put out more content. And all these companies, like I was just trying to buy something. I won't mention the brand, but there's literally no videos. There was a video that was shot from out of the country and it had subtitles in English. I go, there's no apps engineer that could just duplicate it and just throw it up on your YouTube channel that has 48 subscribers and three videos. It just drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah, I do think a company like Brother, because there is kind of like a, no pun, but there's like a brotherhood there. Oh yeah. No, there's a, I didn't have them made at the time, but the next time I go to IMTS, I'm definitely wearing my bright blue cancel with saving changes t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So yeah, brother could easily do that. Cause I know that Yamazen has, well, if they don't have resources, they need to carve out resources and just start a channel and just have like a, Hey, if you buy a brother, here's your username and login where us brother users post simple, almost like TikToks or reels or shorts. There's actually a very active brother CNC operators group on Facebook. And that's the go-to place. Now, it's way different from being on a place like YouTube or Instagram. People aren't posting long form videos there, but it is really helpful because you can have conversations with tons of other brothers, brother users. And there are guys there who have 50 brothers and there mm. are guys there who have one. And there are guys who are working in aerospace and guys who are working in automotive and guys doing all kinds of stuff. There are guys from the UK and other places around the world talking about their brothers and the various differences. And it's a really great place, but it's often very hard to go back and find something later. Oh, You're like, no. Yeah. Who was the one person? Because search internally in Facebook is terrible. And if you're looking for the top line thing, like where was that really cool post with the video about the guy who had this weird setup for calibrating his bloom probe in the spindle? And it was mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. You might be able to find that because you can skim. But if you're looking for a thing that's buried 30 comments down on somebody else's thread, you can never find that stupid thing again. Right. Yeah. Gosh, that would be almost like entry-level work, data entry for someone at Yamazen or Brother to just scrape that stuff and just put it on just the link or embed it somewhere. So, ah, it seems easier. Hey, I want to leave you with this and then I got to wrap. But one of the things at the DSI event that really stood out is Cloud NC, and it's a plugin for Fusion called Cam Assist. It's pretty darn amazing. Now, at the event, I won't talk about it because I think there's some forward-looking statements. But it is AI for machining, and it's exactly how we should program. Like no one with a 3D printer 
looks at G code. Maybe some people do. You don't need to. It's just, here's the part, slice it, send to printer. The cloud NC, I feel is like one step closer. I wouldn't say it's not at the 3D printer point. I think it, you know what? It's exactly what chat GPT does. It'll generate something for you that is like 90% there and you can edit, review and edit. Cloud NC, same thing. And the best thing about it, I think, and it was kind of glossed over, is that it uses feeds and speeds from its known material testing. It pulls tools from your Fusion library to see what tools you have, but then it adjusts feeds and speeds for known cuts. And so, because, okay, so I have kind of like John, he's in kind of, I'll call him the old school machinist in the shop. It's like, hey, don't run this too fast. You don't want to break the tool. He'd be more likely to have that type of approach and running tools too light. Yep. Alex, my meals guy, very also cautious machinist. He was running something and I'm like, hey, you need to triple the feed rate. What? Yeah, just try it. Okay. Hey, if you break it, that's on me. Well, he ran it double. I come back. How's it looking triple? I ran it double. Okay. Okay. Double the depth. Uh, okay. And it sounded beautiful. It actually sounded better. It's that type of thing, that personality, that experience, that fear that it takes it out. I'm looking at this. I could send you a link, but it's about 500. Okay. This is going to be pounds, about 527 pounds per year. But I do think if you can just send it to its cloud-based processor and within about 60 seconds, it's going to have, it builds out everything. It builds out like, I think setup and everything down, tool paths, <laughs> everything. So I would at least, uh, we're going to try it for at least one year. But if you were a job shop, I would definitely recommend it. There's a free plug right there. Well, thanks for chatting with me. I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. See you, Andrew. Have a good day.